1: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. ba da ba ba participating McDonald's. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
3: The way in which the colonial boundaries were drawn by the old colonial powers meant that what you had on independence was some 40 spaces in which there were, almost without exception, a huge divergence of cultures. And people in those days, 1950s and 1960s, both within Africa and outside, were much more optimistic about how quickly you could change this.
4: That was Tom Young on the legacy of the colonial division of Africa. Inside every issue of our global history title, BBC World Histories, we feature a conversation piece, where two historians explore the themes brought out by one of their books. For the most recent edition, we brought together Tom Young, Senior Lecturer at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and Emma Dabery, a broadcaster and PhD researcher at Goldsmiths, to discuss Tom's new book, Neither Devil Nor Child, how Western Attitudes Are Harming Africa. The conversation took place at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And here's what they had to say.
5: So I have to admit I was intrigued when I heard about, about the book and um, the title, well, Neither Devil Nor Child, How Western Attitudes Are Harming Africa. I was just really interested in that, in, in that perspective because generally we hear that the West is beneficial to the continent, so this is kind of a departure from that narrative. What was the um, inspiration that you had to kind of make a book unpacking some of those, or not even unpacking, but refuting some of the primary kind of things that we believe about the continent?
3: Uh, I suppose, um, to put it rather pompously, uh, I think the function of academics is to tell the truth. And that's actually rather difficult to do in politics. Politics is not about telling the truth, by and large. Uh, And I thought that the way in which the public debate had gone, and some of the academic debate, it was time to sort of try and argue for a viewpoint that wasn't trapped in one of the number of sort of entrenched positions. We have a rather silly kind of squabble goes on on the fringes of academia, I suppose. Actually not on the fringes, between, you know, empire was a good thing, empire was a bad thing. I mean there are interesting questions to be raised about that, and it's exactly the same argument about aid. Aid is a good thing, aid is a bad thing. So not for the sake of novelty as such, but just to say this is this isn't really the issue. Mm-hmm. The issue is actually st- somewhat different, and to try to argue what that issue is. The assumption, I suppose, a bit more, I think it's quite easily sort of justified, but the assumption is that the problems facing Africa are essentially to do with production and productivity. And again, to what I do there is I part company with the rather silly kind of Afro-optimism that also prevails in certain circles and this goes in cycles there was a cycle of Afro-optimism in the 1950s, there was another cycle in the early 21st century, Mm -hmm. Uh, we're just coming out of this current cycle So this is
5: all of the Africa rising narrative and
3: and African lions Mm -hmm. and all the rest of it and basically to say uh, it's not Eurocentric or nasty to say Africa has a big fundamental problem and that big fundamental problem is is weak production and weak productivity and from that follow other things about you know how one makes sense of that and what if anything one should do about it
5: so some points that were made in the book i was well lots of them i was interested in and wanted to ask you about about further um which also ties in with what you just mentioned about telling the truth um I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were regarding the idea of objective truth. And can we be in a position, especially as people who are not Africans, to tell the truth about Africa? Is there a truth, would your truth be different to Wally Inka's truth, to my truth? What is the truth? Well, I'll start
3: with a nice, easy question. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, I I mean, I sort of allude to those things not quite in the way that you've said in the preface where I say, you know, basically this is not rocket science. So the truth of the kind that people can find in mathematics or physics is not to be had in human affairs simply because as well as thinking about things, we engage with them. And the way in which we engage with them is bound to shape the way we think about them, which is why... uh, no controversy in any social science or humanity I can think of has ever been resolved because these are not in that sense resolvable the other point you're making is a bit different and is not covered by that which is the business about um, if that's true there is a connection here if that's true then how can it be possible for an Australian to make any sense of Mongolia or a Mongolian to make any sense of Brazil that I think is pushing things too far and also if you take that to the limit then it, it it portends a kind of anarchy and the fact is that people do talk about things across various kinds of boundaries and so on and so forth. So I think what one has to do is make a distinction between lived experience and what we can say beyond lived experience. So, for example, my main point about the contemporary difficulties facing African countries I think is virtually unassailable. If people who lived in Africa said, there's really no problem, we don't face any difficulties of production, productivity. I would need an awful lot of convincing that that was a plausible view to take. But if they say, for example, things like, uh, as sometimes they do, um, if you look, for example, at this you know, all these silly statistics that are collected about how happy people are. Mm-hmm. Some of the happiest people in the world are in Nigeria, mm-hmm. which has... Uh, some of the most extraordinary levels of economic inequality Mm -hmm. which has an extraordinary number of people living on below a dollar a day poverty how can they be happy well that's to do with lived experience Mm -hmm. what's normal in your society what you find pleasurable and so on so those things vary and those things are not hermetically sealed off from other people but they clearly are they make for differences I mean if we wanted to we could call this culture Mm -hmm. um so I think all one can do in in practice is not to allow this to become a kind of excessive problem and to just navigate it with a bit of common sense. Um, so, for example, uh, the last chapter of the book I showed to a Nigerian friend of mine. I wanted, I wanted an African viewpoint, if you like, uh, and he said it was ridiculously pulling its punches, and I should be far more critical and so on and so forth. Fair enough. Um, but I, why did I do that? Because I wanted him, I wanted, I wanted a viewpoint from somebody, as it were, in that world. Um, but in the 21st century, people straddle these worlds in all sorts of ways. And I don't think it's, I think there are some issues there, but I think they can be handled with a reasonable amount of goodwill and common sense.
5: You say that nation states are basically the best option that there are for international relations and for the kind of successful governance of, of, of world politics. But then there are African scholars who would refute that and they would argue that a lot of Africa's problems are actually located within ideas such as the nation state, which there has been no serious attempt to really engage with. The nation state was, was, um, was adopted um, and... There hasn't really been any movement to consider the 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 world in which it was adopted, and to ha- perhaps reject it or to try and negotiate different ways of governance, or um, statehood wouldn't be the word. But um, I guess, yeah, a rejection of some of these of some of these norms—the idea that they they're they're just clearly not working within the African context. What would you say to? that kind of school of thought?
3: Well, um, let's start with some facts. Uh, independence, all, all African colonial territories has had been uh, opted to be nation states. There's some qualifications to that, but broadly speaking, that's what they opted for. With the same boundaries. So boundaries in Africa have been extremely stable the whole, at least for the last 100 years, much more stable than boundaries in Europe. Um... Of course, both within Africa and outside, there are positions that say the nation state it's a horrible thing and we should get rid of it and all live as one happy family. And the African version of that is Pan-Africanism. And that has had a sort of renewed energy latterly. So there's all sorts of talk about a common passport, no visa restrictions on people from Af- other African countries on. I'm skeptical as to how quickly that would be implemented, but one could see it being implemented for, on a sub-regional basis fairly mm. uh, easily. Um, And in Europe, of course, there's the most advanced version of this, the European uh, Union, which effectively has involved uh, uh, surrender of a degree of sovereignty to a common body. Uh, Here's a nice example of where you can't, as it were, keep your own uh, preferences out of the discussion. So I don't think they've refuted it. I think they're articulating a different point of view. My point of view is that most of those attempts at some kind of supranational entities will come to grief, Um, And the reason for that is because they cannot anchor themselves in people's real sense of solidarity and cultural similarity. The other side of that coin is that within Africa itself, because the way in which the colonial boundaries were drawn by the old colonial powers meant that what you had on independence was some 40 spaces in which there were, almost without exception, a huge divergence of cultures and people in those days, 1950s and 1960s both within Africa and outside were much more optimistic about how quickly you could change this Kenneth Cohen used to say we're all Zambians now now of course we're not all Zambians now, there's lots of different groups in Zambia and they don't see eye to eye the tough business about creating a nation state is that the quickest way to do it is to have lots of wars that's how England and France became nation states by defining yourself against an enemy. The problem for African leaders in, in the period of decolonization was that the rest of the world wouldn't allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. So effectively would intervene, particularly after the end of the Cold War, try to intervene to prevent conflicts. Um, It's a hard business constructing nation-states. If you can't have wars, then you've got to find another way to do it. And I think in some ways part of the problem here is that African elites haven't been particularly kind of sensitive to the difficulties of doing that. Um, And there are also some kind of... There are aspects of that that I I wouldn't call colonial legacy, but they're clearly related. One is language. Mm -hmm. So for all sorts of very good reasons, with the obvious exception of Tanzania, virtually all African states and legal systems talk a a European language, English, French, Portuguese. But that has caused enormous Mm -hmm. problems in terms of building a nation state when that language is usually, I think without exception, not spoken by more than half the ordinary population who's Mm -hmm. speaking some other language. And there are all sorts of issues about this in terms of education, literature, broadcast, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But I think African elites massively underestimated in the immediate post-colonial periods the difficulties that they would face here and the choices that they have to make and it may well be that in some ways they're becoming more alert to those things Um, these issues are not by any means restricted to Africa it's very interesting for example that the AFD in Germany has been calling for the abolition of English in primary schools in Germany on the grounds that German students should concentrate. Youngsters should concentrate on learning German. Now, whatever you might think about that, mm-hmm. what it suggests is that the the politics of this is not going to go away.
5: I was curious um, as to know your because because this is um, kind of an unconventional um, take in in certain aspects. I was curious to have your perspective on other voices that maybe fly in the face of what the mainstream um, narrative is about about African development. Mm -hmm. And the school of thought with um, certain scholars and academics that the idea of um, endless growth, not even in the African context, but generally as the kind of economic model, which we should be following, is not something that we can continue to pursue and it's not something that should be, it's kind of unquestionably assumed that that's the direction. That's what Africa should be attempting to, to achieve. But it's not even sustainable in this part of the world. Um, and I'd love to know what your thoughts.
3: Uh, I don't really deal with that because I think as far as Africa, I mean, these are first world problems. This is a sort of crass answer. Um, I don't think if you've got half the population living on, on a dollar a day that you can say, this is, we can't be more productive. Mm-hmm. I just think that's, I mean, that's unreasonable. For the rest, it's, uh, because I take a very strong pro-view of African sovereignty and non-interference in its internal affairs, that's a, that's a matter for Africans to decide themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. the, ha, what their take is on those kinds of environmental and ecological questions is a matter for them. Um, those things are actively discussed in... Africa. Some African countries, there have been quite active environmental movements. As population densities intensify and empty spaces get, if not filled up, then at least uh, gradually developed, that's clearly happening all over the continent. Then those questions will be posed more actively. And of course, there's a there's a there's a practical commercial dimension to this. If, as I think, is fairly reasonable to argue that tourism is a quite potential useful potential money earner for africa then you've got to sort of balance your 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 domestic needs with what you need in order to sustain uh high value tourism and there are all sorts of aspects of that because in many ways the high value tourism in africa values the so-called primitive and traditional and you could have interesting debates about whether you actually want to do that but again they're not debates for us they're debates for africans mm-hmm. um, so I think, you know, that to go into sort of the, the sort of townships in Nairobi or Lagos and say, well, guys, you know, some quite sophisticated intellectuals in the West think that we can't really pursue this production model. I mean, one, I don't think that's politically feasible, and two, I don't think it's actually morally reasonable. The problem is, for Africa at the moment, is production and productivity. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the answer. Um, that's not to say that you should not be alert to you know, the effects of dam building. Um, But these things have tended to be imposed as outside agendas. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Um, So, you know, when the World Bank lent money for the pipeline in Chad, it pointed a whole series of anthropological and environmental experts who said, you must do this, you must do that. Mm -hmm. And after a while, the Chadian government said, I mustn't be rude, must I? Go away. We're not going to take any notice of you. (laughs) Uh, Um, I I don't don't think that's... uh, a particularly pressing issue as far as Africa is concerned. I really don't. I mean, I think the pressing issues are... these. Is, you can raise these issues once you've reached a certain level of material prosperity.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Nobody, nobody ever historically made these kinds of sacrifices so that we're going to stay poor because, you know, we're worried about plastic in the sea.
5: I just wonder that mm-hmm. if pro- production and productivity and growth is a broken model, um, then what is the likelihood of it ever being successfully um achieved were created um uh, achieved in the continent to a, to at to a level where it actually becomes beneficial to the majority of people and i think you i think he raised the point that africa is poorer now than it was i'm not sure if you did but i think i read that africa is poorer now than it was in pre-colonial times or have i invented that okay <laughs> there have been
3: periods when regression has been quite dramatic
5: because what I find really interesting is the idea that um say in pre-colonial Yoruba um, even in the in the nineteenth century, um, people are well generally well fed um and their farm there's there's, there's 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 a vigorous and robust um farming culture there's certainly not poverty and financial degradation in the way that many Nigerians endure today. There's the argument that people are materially poorer today than they, than they, than they were historically. I thought you made that, but maybe that was just wishful thinking. Um, <laughs> and it seems as though the pursuit, since the kind of imposition of European models and forms, the country seems to be, the continent. Not just talking about Nigeria, the continent. Gen, I think it's also difficult to generalise. We talk about the continent a lot, and I think it's really important to focus on specific case studies. But I'm not going to do that now. I'm going to talk about the continent. Um, just seems to be becoming increasingly unequal, and poverty doesn't is is not is not being eradicated. And if you look at, um, especially, I'm going to take the Yoruba again as a case study. The idea that in, pre- in the pre-colonial context, nobody was homeless. The land was, there would be land for everybody. And there would also be kind of farming opportunities. Basically, subsistence was guaranteed in a way that it's not now. And I often, I find it really sobering, sobering, that in many ways, yeah, the continent seems worse off than it would have been, which is very much at odds with the development narrative.
3: Mm. It's fantastically difficult to make those kinds of comparisons because obviously, for example, all sorts of things exist now that didn't exist in 19th-century Yoruba land, and so how do you do the measures? Mm-hmm. The intuition that you're articulating, I think, is quite um, tempting. Um, but it, it invo- it's a bit like saying, was, could things have been better in, pre- in pre-industrial England? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, in some ways, there was less pollution, people had calmer lives, they weren't driven by clock time. But these are, in a sense... These are talking points, these are not practical. We can't go back to pre colonial England or even pre colonial Europe. On um, terms of growth, clearly African countries sustain periods of growth, leaving aside all the problems economists have with GDP and so on. The problem with the growth is twofold. One is it's driven by external demand for largely crops and minerals. So, obviously, with the Chinese economy booming, and so China is buying up everything that in the world. Uh, The second thing is that the growth does not produce economic, when I say the problems of production productivity, that needs elaborating. It does not produce economic diversification. And so uh, countries that sustain, and this is why the high growth rates in Africa story is so misleading, because that's assumed to mean your economy is diversifying, you know, your range of productive capabilities is increasing, but that's not happening, or at least in large parts of the continent it's not happening. And even in the quasi-industrialised part of the continent, South Africa, the economy is stagnating. So that, 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 I think, is the sort of, that's the issue. Now, how you do that, uh, there are all sorts of possibilities. The argument at the end of the book is that if we want to help this, we should invest in infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I make the argument that... Um, The economist is going to talk about these things till the cows come home. The Mm fact of the matter is that no modern economy gets to be productive without uh, infrastructure and electricity. Throughout Africa, people constantly complain about the inadequacy. Nigeria is a good example. (laughs) The inadequacy of Nigeria, of the electricity supply, and the inadequacy of roads and so on and so forth. And and my argument is precisely that is such an unalloyed good that we ought to commit to it. Everything else is a matter for Africans to decide for themselves. Now, if people decide um, we want to go for low-growth strategies but more distributions on, that's a matter for them. The point about elites that you raise Mm -hmm. is is very pressing because you have some of the most unequal societies in the world. Mm -hmm. So you have extremely ostentatiously wealthy tiny ruling groups, Mm -hmm. often connected to politics.
5: Sort of like England.
3: Uh, Tiny, tiny, (laughs) tiny.
5: Um,
3: And you have masses of people who are desperately impoverished living in the so-called informal sector, which means they're desperately impoverished. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that, I think, is partly political. Um, And despite multi-party democracy and so on, I think it's quite difficult for... The popular masses, if you like, to bring pressure to bear on elites to do something about that. Or I think there are some signs that that's beginning to occur. For example, elites in elections are talking now much more about bread and butter issues, about improving conditions, and so on and so forth. Now, they may just be talking, but my sense is that that's probably shifting a bit, which is the sort of optimistic reading of. Mm -hmm. Democracy Mm -hmm. in Africa, they're a more pessimistic reading. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, that's that's an internal matter, and there may well be quite severe friction and battles in African societies over those issues, just as, of course, there were in the historical past and to some extent still are in other societies. But the fact of the matter is that those battles are likely to be less antagonistic if there's a bigger pie to share. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Southeast Asian countries, which have all grown astonishingly in the last 20 years or so but they've all diversified in the 1950s people thought that south korea was a basket case and they were optimistic about africa south korea is now a major industrial producer produces every kind of sophisticated product you can think of Mm -hmm. no african country does that Mm -hmm. so that's the that's the hard case you've got to try and grapple with
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
4: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
5: What do you think about the idea that when a leader emerges in an African country that does seem like a person that will challenge a lot of the issues that exist with the elites. That person tends to come to a rather untimely demise. So it almost seems as though, well, it, 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 it seems quite explicitly as though there's often a vested interest um, with the elites in collusion with European and Western powers to stop, those type, to stop those type of move, movements. And we know that a lot of um, people, a lot of dictators, a lot of um, leaders who've been responsible for a lot of the abuses in Africa have been supported in their positions by outside, by outside forces. So I, I guess this kind of operates on the premise that there isn't a lot of interference from outside in African affairs.
3: Well, I think we're probably disagreeing about the kinds of interference. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're thinking of people like Sankara, or I suppose even Kwame Nkrumah, we're or, lim- or oh, Muratala Mohammed, I mean, a number. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I could all, I've obviously counter that with Jerry Rawlings, who's still fighting fit and going strong and so, <laughs> so forth. Um, I think two things about African elites. I think there's a tendency, both in sort of Western if I might put it impolitely, sort of guardian discourse to blame everything on African elites. And I think actually there's a tendency in Africa itself to blame everything on African elites, and that's too easy. African elites are not disconnected from the wider society, they're part of the society. So one of the reasons that they are successful is because they speak for certain groups, because certain groups don't see eye to eye with other groups. Not all politics in Africa is ethnic, but quite a lot of it is. So if you look at Kenya or Uganda, then you can clearly see that One of the reasons why elites stay in power is because they're considered to be representative of their particular group. And those groups have antagonistic relations. Now, this is not all engineered from outside, which is, you know, one view. I don't think that's actually very plausible.
5: Although I think it's fair to say that the rigidity around the boundaries of ethnic identity became far more entrenched as part of colonialism, with the standardisation of languages, with um, identities that had previously been more fluid, um, less fixed, with more scope to kind of enter in and out of um, kind of like contingent allegiances rather than fixed ethnic identities is something that I think... Well, I guess there are different, different schools of thought from my perspective... Um, this is something that was, if we take the Europa, that there wasn't a pan-Eurobar ethnic identity before colonialism. Um, so it's not to locate all of the ethnic kind of conflict as being the, uh, as colonialism as being to blame for that, but it is acknowledging the role that, that the role that colonialism has played and then quite conveniently, Western commentators now will say, "Oh well, there are these ancient ethnic hatreds," um, not looking at the way that, in many ways, they have been engineered.
3: Um, I'm not sure that there's much of an argument there, really. Uh, Nobody doubts, for example, that um, you know, pre-colonial times there was no such thing as Kalenjin in Kenya, and Mm -hmm. that what's happened here is that groups have consolidated into sort of larger groups, and you find this all over Africa. Um, but this goes back to your point about the nation-state. What, what I think you want to believe is that all these things are rather horrible and antiquated, and we should get rid of them. Now, here's a counterexample. Who'd have thought 20 years ago that Scottish nationalism was anything but a joke? Now it's a serious force, OK? Now, this wasn't engineered from outside. We live, I think, in a world in which is characterised by both globalisation and localization. So all over Africa, for example, people are writing their stories. They have websites, you know, www.kalenjin.com. They have people writing their histories, often in French or English, Um, because identity and uh, moral community, you might call it, seems to me to be a human thing, not an African thing. And it's bursting out all over Europe. Partly, I would say, but this is my perspective, because certain powerful forces have actually tried to get rid of it and say, your identity, your way of life is now superseded, we now live in a larger, whatever it might be, Africa, Europe, and so on. So at the very least, I would have thought, in today's world, we're living in a a, a sort of a battle between these kinds of viewpoints. From my viewpoint, the difficult thing, to be parochial for a moment, is to persuade the Scots, the Welsh and the English to live together in a single polity and if we can't then we'd have to separate I don't think it's hugely different in Africa how do we persuade Yoruba, Ibo and Hauser and I think one gets the sense in Nigeria that uh, anti-northern sentiment is increasingly strong in southern Nigeria and even in the north where traditionally the view has been Nigeria must remain united the sense of you know what 's the value in being part of nigeria why don 't we split now i 'm not saying it 's a good or a bad thing it 's actually not for me to say for Nigerians to decide but i think those I think those issues are peculiarly difficult in Africa i think some of that is um, unintended side effects of the the colonial period I think rather than uh, the divide and rule stuff there 's some truth in that, but I think that 's rather exaggerated mm-hmm. um, if you look at, for example, what colonial education officials were saying in the late colonial period, they actually were arguing that, well, we've got to now tell these people that they're part of a wider entity. It's not actually, did and rule sort of talk at all, it's almost the opposite. How do we hand this over to a, a, a people who see this as their sort of common home, their, their nation state? So I think that those are, those are peculiarly difficult things to do. Um, if you wanted to look for other signs in Senegal, for example, something like 60% of the population speak an African language. Mm-hmm. I think you know it's most unlikely. Well, Casamance is a problem, but. It, there are examples. I think Ghana also, and I think that also tends to go with effective democracy.
5: Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm just interested in the idea that um, in that there there were certain institutions, like a, a very well known one, like the Poro um, in Sierra Leone, um, or the women's version, which was the Sande, I believe, that um, crisscrossed over ethnic yeah. divisions. So people had these indigenous institutions that created a sense of. Um, inclusivity uh, that then became kind of superseded by ethnic identities, which in many ways kind of eroded or, or weakened some of those pre-colonial institutions that existed that made the societies more cohesive.
3: I don't want to stray onto the ground of telling people what to do, because mm-hmm. the whole point of the book is don't tell people what yeah. to do. But I think one could allow oneself to comment, two comments actually. One is just to gloss on what you've just said, which is that almost all of those things that you referred to, um, secret societies, age sets and so on, were dismissed as not modern. Mm -hmm. In other words, the the, the early post-colonial African elites desperately wanted to be modern, verging to the point of mimicry. I mean, think of the parliaments with people in wigs, heavy red, you know, the the ultimate absurdity of Emperor Bokassa being crowned emperor of the Central African Republic in a copy of Napoleon's coronation of 1804. Um, the Kenyan judiciary arguing now about Whigs and, you know, um, without thinking where are we and what have we got? I mean, what have we got and what could we do with it? And never mind what anyone else thinks about it. Now, there are some genuine ideological issues here. Secret society is not very gender equal. So quite a lot of the things that you're talking about fall foul, not only of progressive opinion in the West, but progressive opinion in Africa. Mm -hmm. So, but these are debates for Africans to have. But I personally think that that, that I think that's sensible. The other thing is um, to be more sceptical and questioning and creative about the things that you think you should adopt. I mean, the obvious one here is democracy. Virtually every country in Africa now has elections. There's very very little thinking, as far as I can see, in Africa about what what democracy might mean in certain circumstances. So, I mean, compare democracy and. Belgium, Britain and Brazil, they're all quite different um, whereas in Africa I think the sense is we've got to do this because everybody has elections these days and so on and so forth and
5: because our funding is dependent because, on
3: <laughs> you, know, you can get outsiders to pay for elections of course, and all that, rather than thinking look, okay well, let's first of all think about what the range of democracy might mean, sort of theoretically conceptually, there's lots of debate about that but then let's think about how you do it you know, why do we have to do it? But I don't get, I think elites are relatively happy just to sort of show that they're doing the things that you're supposed to do without actually thinking very creatively about how you might do that. Occasionally this occurs. I mean, after the abolition of apartheid, there was talk about government, of national unity and so on. In fact, that's what happened. Occasionally power sharing is sort of kicked around. Ethiopia and Burundi are quite interesting, although neither of them is a good Recipe for success. But I think those are the things you've got to explore. How, how do you do these things given very sharp cultural differences? One other point about what you're saying, in Nigeria's sort of textbook case this whole business of indigeneity, Nigerians actually say indigenes at the sub state level, is having devastating effects because people have to stick in the state that they're in mm-hmm. because that's the only place that they're going to get. And if they move to another state, they will be treated as not indigene. And this was the same kind of problem in Cote d'Ivoire, but in a different way. And that's, that's also something that I think has impeded. It's in, it impedes labour markets, for example. It will impede economic progress. And so that's something, the whole issue of citizenship is something that African countries, I think, have to think harder about.
5: Mm-hmm. Tom, how do you expect the book to be received? And what would you like the impact to be?
3: that's not fair, is
5: it? Uh, Do you think it will ruffle feathers?
3: Well, it wouldn't be much point if it didn't. Um, It's to make people think, basically. I mean, I think that's what academics are for. Make people think. um, I've tried in the book to to be very clear about my own um, leanings, as I have been answering your questions, but in the back I've put reading lists which cover a range of options so that people can read this book and say Young's talking rubbish. Um, But yes make people think and make them think in a sense obviously in life we all rely on frameworks that guide us as to what to say and think because you couldn't think about everything afresh every day that's not possible. But sometimes those frameworks have to be broken up.
5: Realistically how likely do you think it is that the level of well, I think, I think to you, the, the, Europe, the, the relationship between Africa and the West is largely like well-intentioned and benevolent, but just very arrogant or arrogant. OK, so I take, a, I take quite a different stance. But um, to, um, to what degree do you think the kind of current levels of interference, shall we say, um, might plausibly cease?
3: Um. Okay, well, if everyone reads this book, then obviously the world will change dramatically. <laughs> um, uh, I think among, amongst people interested in Africa in, in academia, sotto voce, I think there's an increasing shift against aid. I mean, it, 20 years ago, if you said, let's get rid of aid, you'd be regarded as some sort of fascist. Now, if you say it, people say, yeah, mm, it's not doing much good, is it? So there's that. Um, of course, these things will always be used by various kinds of political groupings to push various kinds of lines. So my, I think aid, as currently constitutes, is a disaster. It just induces dependency. That is not to say that you couldn't uh, invest resources in Africa along the lines that I very briefly suggest at the end of the book. And I don't have any problem with people pursuing their interests. This is why I think the Chinese role in Africa is quite healthy, because the Chinese don't talk the language of aid. They talk the language of interests. What have you got? What have we got? Can we exchange? And the reason why Africans like that is not just about political conditionalities. It's partly that that's just just to treat people equally in a funny kind of way. It's just to say, well, you know, what have have you got? What have we got? Let's exchange. And I think we should move in that direction. Um, So in a sense, put it on a much more business-like footing. Um, But then African countries or their governments have got to fight their corner. I mean, they've got to fight for their interests and not just dig stuff out of the ground and put it in ships and sell it to other people.
4: That was Tom Young in conversation with Emma Dabbery. Neither Devil Nor Child, How Western Attitudes Are Harming Africa by Tom Young is out now published by One World. And you can read a version of this interview in issue nine of BBC World Histories which is on sale now and available in many good retailers. You can also now take out a subscription to World Histories. Head to historyextra.com forward slash subscribe if that's of interest to you. Okay, well that's about it for today, but please do join us on Thursday for more from the world of history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher.